Hello, I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. Welcome to Season 8, Episode 6 of Seen From Above, an informal podcast about the cool things happening in Earth Observation. Check out seenfromabove.org for the podcast archive and show notes, and follow the show on Twitter via at EOSeenFrom and using the hashtag SeenFromAbove. In this episode, we talk to Keiko about Google Earth Engine. Cool, let's do the news. 25th of November, 2020. I think probably should start by congratulating ESA on a successful launch of Sentinel-6. That's true. Well done, ESA, and everyone involved. Yeah, it was launched at the weekend on SpaceX, and I've been meaning to ask this question, but I keep forgetting and get distracted by other things. But was that the first time we've had a Sentinel launched on SpaceX? Don't they normally go from the Ariane 5? But I thought, oh, that's unusual, isn't it? But maybe not. I, I, I don't know. Twitter did, did a really good job. Hashtag Sentinel Nerds cheering it on. Um, some really inspiring stuff. And it's lovely to see the sort of power of social media getting on the back of these. I guess they're quite niche launches for, for the general public. I'll tell you what was interesting about this launch, though, was how much it was in the general news. Like, not just the science news or the EO news. I heard it on the radio, saw it on the TV. It it was being talked about as this is the satellite that's going to help monitor climate change. And it's interesting that this one got so much attention. Maybe there there has been a, a shift this year. Maybe something like COVID has helped people understand that you need good data to, to make good decisions. It's interesting that Sentinel-6 was really high profile. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm just looking at the continuity plan for Sentinel. We haven't had anything since sort of the back end of 2017, early 2018, in terms of satellites. But coming up in 2022, we've got 1C going up and 1D following it in 2027. And Sentinel-2, we've got Sentinel-2C going up in 2022 and you know, similar to um, 1D, 2D is going up in 2028. Well, that's quite interesting that 1C and D are going up, but I'm guessing that 1A and B are working perfectly fine at the moment. Um, so will we have four? We will. And the lifetime of them is, I think, planned to be about 10 years. Okay. Uh, and yeah, we've got Sentinel-5A to look forward to and Sentinel-4. Sentinel-4. So 2022, yeah exciting time and we've, we've obviously got things like worldview legion and pleiades neo and stuff coming as well as you mentioned legion i'm going to jump in with something that's sort of related to that which is the introduction of 15 centimeter high def imagery from maxar in the past we've talked about sort of quiet launches this was a big loud launch about the fact that maxar are going to be expanding their imagery by offering high definition stuff. So down to 15 centimeters, which is really, really cool, but also very important because that now comes into the realm of aerial imagery in terms of its pixel size. As far as I understand, they're not actually collecting at 15 centimeters. They're using artificial intelligence, and I guess deep learning and that sort of stuff to downscale from their 30 centimeter imagery collection down to the 15 centimeter but it's still super exciting and some of the examples that they've given on their website are very very impressive and the reason that it is linked to legion is because at the bottom of their press release they talk about the expansion of both their high def 
image technology, but also the fact that they're now getting these Worldview Legion satellites up and running and they'll be coming online over the next few years. So yeah, plenty of exciting things starting to happen out of Maxar. There are applications for it. I don't know what the cost or the price will be, or but I, I found it a, a sort of hang on <laughs> kind of moment <laughs> because normally these things have, have been given permission to 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 deliver data at a certain resolution restricted yeah. by by governments so this isn't acquiring but it's resampling isn't it yeah okay great so i wanted to to mention a couple of things but um two two blogs really that stood out um since the last time the first one is on xra it's a short blog post we've talked about xra a bit in our archive of, of podcasts um with robin and it seems to be gaining more traction now as, as a way of working with temporal data. This is well set out and, and, and a neat introduction to X-Array. Personally, I find X-Array harder to sort of visualize in my mind than, than other ways of working with data. And the second blog post that I wanted to mention was by Chris Holmes, another ex-interviewee on the, on the podcast. And it was just a summing up of the um, cloud native geospatial sprint awards, but also a distribution of financial prizes to various people prizes like the, the best teacher unsung hero all this kind of stuff so he's really made a massive effort to acknowledge the impact that uh, people from all around the world had on this cloud native geospatial day that's brilliant that that's happened so <laughs> both of those are really interesting posts like you say one for the sort of community aspect and and the other one for more technical side of things one thing i would ask actually as we're talking about blog posts if anyone's listening who wants to write a blog post that goes through the links between all of the various different geospatial libraries for Python now. That would be really handy. Talking about how X-Array might link to GeoPandas, which links to Pandas, but also how it links in with Open Data Cube. And I'm sure there's a whole host of other geo-related QB time series -y labeling things. I came across Holoviews the other day. That would be a really cool blog post that would certainly get blog post of the month if anyone's listening and wants to write it. So my final bit of news is comes out of Stanford. And this is quite interesting. It's sort of it's EO related in that it's about drones and it's about collecting imagery. But it's basically a post just explaining how somebody from the aeronautics and astronautics uh, part of Stanford is helping collect data down in the Antarctic to look at counting penguins. So this guy has basically come in to help make sure that the flight paths of the uh, drones that they're using make sort of best use of the amount of energy they have in their batteries because given it's so cold the batteries don't last as long etc etc and also there's a whole host of restrictions around how long you can fly over the, the colonies down there and the fact that you have to start from a certain distance in the past researchers might have used a helicopter which is obviously fuel inefficient and very noisy or they might have used a single drone that was guided by a, a human and again they're talking about having to start maybe two or three kilometers back from the edge of the colony. And so there's a lot of flying involved that's not actually collecting any data. So what they've come up with here is the use of multiple drones and a series of algorithms that basically plot routes in and back from doing the survey. Mm. And 
unlike most survey flight lines I've seen where there's grid lines, apparently the most efficient way of doing this to maintain battery and get the coverage that was needed and minimize the amount of disturbance to the birds was to sort of almost do a random walk type thing. Uh, but it mm. wasn't random. It was it was generated by this algorithm. But that, I just thought that was quite an interesting use of mathematics to do something in a completely different way to how it's sort of been standardized so far. It's been a lot of... Uh penguin-related observation things, normally to do with excrement, but good to see there's a slight diversion there. Yes. So uh, Felix Palmer has open-sourced procedural-gl.js. This is a library for creating 3D map experiences for the web. The really nice thing about this is it's just super fast to load, and he's optimized it for for viewing on mobile devices. And um, it's pretty new out, so it's pretty frequently updated at the moment. This is really cool. I always want to sort of highlight things that that make you want to to interact with it. Very simple, not not loads of buttons and billions of layers to try and figure out. Oh, sorry. Right. So yeah, ob- <laughs> obviously, round Oxford, there's no hills. So I was, I was just I was going. To, yeah, yeah, it's all right. Now I've just gone into the middle of the Alps. Okay. Yes. This is yeah. This is nice. What was it? NASA Dem. The elevation model is, yeah. Oh, funky. Okay. Congratulations, Andrew. 500 resources on awesome EO code. That's really top news. Top news. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for everybody who's contributed. I think, I think that's you know the most inspiring thing of it all. And then the final thing I wanted to mention was on the 15th of January 2021, I'm going to be hosting a one-day conference called Rasters Revealed. So this is a one-day conference, as I said, about the use of raster data sets. So it's not necessarily just Earth observation. It's trying to get people who use raster data, so spatially gridded data, in different ways. So maybe you use population data sets or use elevation data or, or whatever to come along and discuss a little bit about the methods and the data that they have and try and share different use cases and different ways of using software and things like that. I did this back in 2017 in Oxford in person. The one in 2021 is going to be online and and virtual. But the 2017 one was a a really big success, I thought, um, because we were able to get people from these different disciplines together and to talk about the different ways that they were doing some of their research or their commercial work. So if you're interested in this, check out restersrevealed.net and I'll be opening it up for registration at the beginning of next month and hopefully i'll see you there we the plan is is to try and have as much social interaction as possible uh, alongside the talk so it's not just going to be a full day of zoom and i just want to say a big shout out to osgo uk who are supporting me in in putting this on by allowing me access to their video conferencing software so that's cool brilliant and that's it for the news We're super lucky this episode to have Keiko Nyamura with us talking about Google Earth Engine and some tips and things there. So Keiko, could you first introduce yourself and uh, tell us a little bit about your history and uh, where you're working now? Sure. Um, I'm Keiko. I'm originally from Japan and I used to work for the UN REP program, which is reducing emissions from deforestation and particularly in Southeast Asia. And I moved to Edinburgh for my PhD study. And that has been finished now. And I work for a startup company called Space Intelligence in Edinburgh. 
cool. Am I right in thinking space intelligence is a spin out from the university? Is that how it's come about? Because there seems to be a whole host of things happening in Edinburgh at the moment. It's really exciting. Exactly. Yeah, I think the university is encouraging, um, you know, the emergence of startups and and business ideas. So space intelligence was um, founded by two people from the university. So Dr. Molly Collins, and uh, Professor Edward Mitchard, who was my supervisor for the PhD. Yeah, and there are other companies like Carbomap, Earthblocks. Yeah, very exciting time in Edinburgh. Certainly in the UK, it seems like Edinburgh and Leicester are the two hubs of space at the moment. So what did you do your PhD on? So I used um, remote sensing techniques. So there are actually two little bit distinct parts to my PhD. The first one was uh, more sort of red plus focused. I looked at monitoring of uh, carbon emissions from land use change where the government uh, submitted to UNFCCC platform. And I looked at what kind of deforestation have been captured there and, and what's not being captured there and pros and cons about assumptions of you know, business as usual emission benchmark versus how they calculate these emissions going forward. So that was one part of it. And the rest of it was uh, remote sensing techniques to see oil palm plantations mostly, but I wanted to find out conservation opportunities. So the issue was to find out where oil palm was planted or other crops were planted and find out where the forests are still standing and can we distinguish that using um, Sentinel 2 and 1 mostly. Not to talk uh, Google Earth anymore, but to talk about data as you raised it because it's quite interesting. So Sentinel sensors were good enough to distinguish the oil palm? So that was really the exciting part. Um, I did this work back in 2018. At that time, there weren't many studies using Sentinel data. So it it was um, exciting to try that. And the research shows, like my PhD research basically shows, yes, Sentinel can do that. And I think it's because of the red edge bands. We were, were thinking about what we could discuss earlier on, and Andrew came up with a really good question, which was, what is the status of Earth observation and geospatial more generally like in Japan? Because uh, we're very conscious on this podcast that we're quite yeah. biased towards Europe and the US. I don't know whether you've, you still have links back to the Earth observation sector in Japan, but just wondering if you could maybe fill us in a little bit about the types of things that are going on over there? Yeah, I I think it's a lot of things happening there. Uh, I'm sure you've heard it that the JAXA announced that the um, ALOS data will be public in in the future, in the near future, hopefully. And I think the the trend is is moving to that direction. They're really encouraging private sector business to take on this earth observation uh, data and provide something useful for business. So a company that I know is Toulouse, a T-E-L-L-U-S. So they provide a platform. Initially, it looks similar to Earth Engine, but it's, it's not quite. Uh, they provide both Python and the web-based kind of code editor. The data is focused on Japan, um, but they are trying to encourage uh, basically business and marketplace to use their platform and provide services and algorithms to be developed. So yeah, I think it, it sounds like we are all moving into this direction. The business is necessary to to really make 
best use of all the data we are getting because it's a really overwhelming amount of data. Oh, that's really heartening to hear that all of the space agencies, it seems, around the world are really throwing a lot of resource and a lot of time and effort at making sure that their data are available and uh, are there to not only sort of power research, but also power commercial entities as well. So that's, that's very cool to hear. I always ask people this, which is, do you think you need a PhD to progress in a Earth observation remote sensing career? Well, I think the short answer is no. For me, it was really ideal opportunity to, to learn. Yep. It doesn't have to be in the form of PhD, clearly, but I think a PhD for me was sort of give me a full-time opportunity to really dive into this area. It's sort of like a boot camp environment to, mm. to get into. The advantage, though, of, I think, PhD or actually physically coming to a place like, like Edinburgh is, you know, you can hop into the office of, like, Ian Woodhouse and ask him, like, questions and interacting with, with people like yourselves to, to be able to kind of converse conversation about remote sensing. That actually gives you a tremendous knowledge yeah, so it's the intensity, sort of the coming together and being able to lean on people in a in a similar environment that is the real differentiator there. It's, it's really interesting, I think. Most of the people coming to PhD wants to work in the academia. So that's like, well, you, you just have to go through PhD, then postdoc and then lecturer. But those who are just interested in, in the knowledge and practical applications, yeah, it could be very dangerous um, because you'd be specialized. And more than a few times I remember doing my presentation during PhD, I said, oh, that would be the outside of scope of my PhD. <laughs> Were you using code as part of your PhD? Is it something that you already had experience with or is it something that you had to learn to, to do your PhD? Yeah, so I came from really non-coding background. Really? Wow. Yeah. I mean, so, you, the stuff that you put out is amazing. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, I'm a little bit surprised myself how my PhD turned out to be. It actually wasn't quite original plan. So other exciting thing about PhD is that it does change <laughs> during the course. Um, but as I was really investigating the issues I, I wanted to find out, it, you really have to deal with the data. Yeah. And my supervisor admitted, I, I really respect his confidence in me. I don't know how he thought I could do it. But I remember my first year PhD, he was literally sitting next to me and opening QGIS <laughs> and showing me a click here, click there. That's how I started. And um, Somehow he thought I, I could just go ahead coding and uh, he thought Earth Engine would be a great introduction to this. Um, he hasn't really explored himself at that time, but it was um, sort of becoming really known and we wanted to, to test how, how good or great <laughs> this may be. I think that's really inspiring and wonderful to hear because, you know, I look at the stuff that you've, you've done on your Earth Engine and your, your tips that you've sort of, I don't know if you feel like you've become famous for, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's just reading back your, um, your blog post that you did on the, the, the 10 tips and, you know, the stuff that you've got in there is really quite amazing in the variety. And the, the other thing that really makes me smile with this, the stuff that, that you do is that you take such inspiration from, from ideas that other people have had. And it's so easy to make a beautiful map in, in Earth Engine. And I overheard that Dr. Matt Hansen said, 
to to Google Earth Engine team that so there will be a lot of terrible maps <laughs> because <laughs> they are making so accessible and hopefully there wouldn't be a lot of terrible maps because <laughs> in order to to create maps you, you still cannot go around the the actual essential knowledge of earth science and remote sensing like I love interacting with other people on Twitter and get ideas from it but I'm very cautious about just you know do something that looks pretty or easy it's always important to to remind ourselves you know we need to understand what we are doing what's happening in this map here with that in mind when somebody first fires up earth engine does it sort of go hey do you want to go through a tutorial and we'll explain the data to you and we'll explain a little bit about remote sensing to you or if i knew nothing about remote sensing could i just fire it up and start doing anything does it guide you in a scientific way yeah, so that's really the question I always go back to. I remember very early days of art blocks, and we always end up talking about, oh, but, you know, it's great you're making this so easy for everyone, but don't you want to explain here why you need to do this, not that? It's always like, how much do you want to make it so easy? But then you have to make a choice, make a decision there, which is based on the assumptions you are going to make. So it's really a delicate balance. You do really need to understand the science behind it, but the coding is getting much easier. You can create great graphs and amazing analysis without understanding really what's going on inside. That can be a bit frightening, can't it? That you can derive some amazing insight from 10,000 images, my, my favourite number, 10,000 <laughs> 10, images, and then draw some amazing conclusion that isn't actually correct. Just because you've been able to do it doesn't necessarily mean that that's as rigorous as it, as it could have been. Yeah, so I think the format of Earth Engine, making the line clear line by line, it does help to understand like your assumptions and where you know, you might have got it wrong or this is not exactly what you are saying you did. So I think the open code helps us to kind of, you know, learn together and understand better. I guess there's the danger that you, you don't get the result that you were kind of hoping for and then you try and force it to the point where it creates that beautiful image that you wanted. I'm not, I'm not using you as, <laughs> as you there, but maybe I should use I. Maybe I want to get something better and then kind of, sacrificing the rigor for getting something more visually appealing that's really the danger of it i think um uh, there is a saying my friend told me i don't know where it came from but if you torture numbers enough they will confess being right is better than creating pretty graphs you know they're using correct data and assumptions going back to sort of the code side of things you started on JavaScript, is that right? Right. Well, I actually started with Python, which um, is my first paper. I used a very traditional Python, but that was for processing uh, Matt Hansen's uh, global forest change data. So not exactly like uh, raw satellite images. For low satellite images, I used the Earth Engine. Yeah. When I started using Python in the Earth Engine background, there wasn't that much in terms of resources available it was more focused on the, the javascript front end it wasn't quite as well documented shall we say at the start of earth engine or when i first came across it yeah there weren't uh, many resources at all and so when i when i discovered some ways to do something i got really excited and and then i i tweeted and i got like two likes <laughs> back in 2018 because not many people were using it but now i think there are so many 
online resources, even courses in the university provided to learn Arc Engine. So, yeah, that's that's great. But you know, you you can do it. You you just uh, it takes a lot of time and interacting with other people that does help. I get the sense that it's being used quite a lot. The university. I think that's still quite recent. In when I was there, R was really the big. Uh, Coding oh, okay. language, yeah. There was a coding club that you know, ninety percent of their materials were for R. Are there any R libraries that hook into Google Earth Engine, or would be quite cool if they moved R into Google Earth Engine itself? Yeah, I think there's already is R G E E. Yep, there is. Yeah, look at awesome Earth Observation Code, Alistair. <laughs> oh, yeah. What's your take on the the apps? Because I, I think that. The, whenever I've um, seen Earth Engine presented, they're really keen on people to create these applications with, with Earth Engine. Yeah, you can make really uh, cool apps relatively easily using Earth Engine apps. And I think the biggest advantage for me is, you know, even just uploading the map you created. So there's an option using, you know, QGIS to web. And then you still have to upload entire data to, you know, either your website or somewhere. While if you use Earth Engine app, you don't need any of the storage area, except you just need, um, you know, your in the cloud that they allocate for you. So there's no limitation as to even if your map is really huge, anyone anywhere in the world can access to your map if you use Earth Engine. For me, that's the biggest advantage. And I see lots of uh, researchers are creating really great apps that um, look so cool and complicated. And it's really intuitive and accessible, and it can be very pretty. It's sort of like an academic's dream, isn't it, in a way, because you could present or give a poster. You can say, you can go and have a look at this uh, online through, through this app, and you can see, see the research. And I think that's really, that's quite a compelling yeah. reason, isn't it? I think if it comes with your paper published, it's really uh, compelling. I've seen that the title change paper that came with a huge Earth Engine app and I have you know, explored myself too. And it's kind of nice to zoom into the area you know of and if there's any title changes in that area. Yeah, it's like really more engaging way to, to read a paper. <laughs> And, and then you're wondering, oh, why this hasn't changed? I, I know for a fact it has changed. And then you go back to the paper and read their methodology and, oh, maybe this is why. Yeah, I think it, it helps. This is going to be such an unfair question, but I always feel like I, I, I want to ask it. I always want to ask it to Alistair, actually. But what, what do you think is, is coming down the line for just in general Earth observation, obviously more satellites being launched, you know, the idea of more constellations coming about, more, more data. Uh, I guess if I said to you what's missing from Earth Engine, you could say, oh, there's, you know, there's this data set and there's, you know, other satellites that, that aren't being fed in. Not from your PhD, I wondered if you had some sort of clue <laughs> where we're moving to in the next sort of few years. Maybe just to answer a little bit more indirectly to that question, like coming from policy background and went to PhD and now I'm at the private sector. I was naively in the beginning surprised that, oh, so people don't know how to do this and you can make money providing this analysis that, you know, only if you knew how to do it, you don't have to. <laughs> so knowledge is definitely 
the key, but you know, we all invested in, in so much years understanding this. So of course you can say that whatever you're providing, but then when you try to answer specific questions, because that, that's what you do in, in the private sector, there's always still <laughs> lack of that specific data set that you want. You, you never have ideal set of data you could have had. So that's still, I think, continue to be a little bit of an issue but we are all you know have dealt with it so what we do is we find other ways to answer the questions with data that are available to us when we spoke to joe morrison last time i mean he he was talking about the, the real winners in the future will be the people who go really deep onto a problem it's really sort of understanding what that question is that does seem to be where we're kind of all converging on to a point I think so. So that actually, to me, indicate more sort of, I, I shouldn't say limitation, but data science, as, as we kind of really are excited about, should be more humbled. <laughs> um, I, I think we really should value more um, knowledge that happening on the ground because data science is nothing if we don't train the data. And, and still that knowledge is a bit of lacking. I think we really understand what's happening on the ground so that we can apply that to the data science more smartly. Absolutely. I mean, the, the number of emails and things that fly at us about, hey, we've got this new geo portal that feels like it's missing the point a bit now. That may have been viable five years ago or a good business idea five years ago, but just because there are these data streams available doesn't necessarily make it the convincing business case that potentially newcomers to the sector think it is. What is missing in Google Earth Engine that you really want? What is the one thing that would make life easier for you? Well, one thing. <laughs> well, I, I think there are pros and cons of using using Earth Engine, using any any coding uh, language. I think, but. Because of the, the population of people who have been using Python or R and doing Earth observation are so much bigger than the people still like it, it's increasing Earth Engine users. But in terms of the history, there's a, a bit of a catching up to do. So there's a lot more sort of modules, libraries available in, in other language and and sort of using in combination with with other things it's a little bit difficult in in our engine so you can use in r you can use in python but still you are confined in that the gee world in a way so it's up to the google team to add functions to for example one of the classifiers and when you want to tweak some parameters uh, there are sort of it's changing, it's it's increasing more and more, but um, it's not like, you know, circuit learn. That's really interesting because from someone who's outside of the GEE community, it seems like everything's happening in Google Earth Engines, like all the development, all the data, it's all over Twitter. And then actually what you're saying is, and I suppose if I think about it rationally, you're right, that there's been so much more development elsewhere and you can't just shoehorn all of those directly into into that plan. Yeah, I think it's it's a matter of time. It's going to um, get more and more. But I think the biggest advantage is still that the cloud-based computing, there's so much Landsat data, historical data, um, and so much you can do without really you know downloading a single image of it. So yeah, it, it makes sense it, a lot happening in Earth Engine, using Earth Engine. Um, and I think people should 
you know, take advantage of it if you are especially a PhD student or in a school. If you try to load all these images and then process in the same script, you can get timeout or yeah. it gets too much. So what you do, <laughs> this is one of the tips I think I, I gave a few years ago, was you export the images you are creating and then you import it back and then process it in a new script. Ah. And then it runs so much more data. Ah, interesting. That is a good tip. <laughs> and that's a that's a good place to leave it i think yeah we'll we'll end on that tip thank you very much keiko for thank you all of your discussion and your tips and everything about google earth engine great nice talking to you We encourage you to drop us a line through Twitter using at EOSeenFrom, where you can find a vibrant community based around the podcast. Thanks for listening, and that's it for now. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Alistair. Bye. Bye. Don't let me down, Brian. Here we go. <laughs> Just wait until I become Alan Partridge. Podcast music is Cracker Jacks and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. Available on freemusicarchive.org.